I've got them all documented in my notes here. I'm not going to share that with you, uh, uh, but I, if you needed it, I have it. And so I'm quoting Andy Stanley. Many of you know uh, that, who that person is. He says this, and I quote, We need to unhitch the Old Testament from our understanding of our faith. He further said the Bible didn't create Christianity. He also stated, uh, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, and I quote again, though it is divinely inspired, it should not be the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. So he's saying uh, that's not where you want to go if you want to you know, find out something about your behavior now uh, in this New Testament age as if it had nothing to offer us. And that's, that's the problem I have with that. So uh, not quoting him. Andy, teach, Andy teaches it is liberating for the Christian to do this, to divorce themselves from the Old Testament when it comes to theology and the right and wrong things to do. Uh, they can, he says, then experience grace. You can read about his position in a book that he has written, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New That Jesus Unleashed for the World. And uh, although he and I both went to the same seminary, I have a lot of problems with that. Uh, if I thought that of the Old Testament, I would not have got my Master of Theology degree in Old Testament and Hebrew studies. I don't think that you can take the Old Testament and throw it out and not use it and that it's not important. A pastor recently said this, and I quote, The Gentiles didn't even have an option to be saved until Jesus, end quote. That is absolutely false. That is absolutely not true. Gentiles came to know God as their Savior in the Old Testament all the way through it. In fact, uh, we, we have those that are celebrated. Ruth was a Moabitess, and she came to know Christ. All right, so there's just all kinds of examples of that without getting into it. So we have to ask the question, is the Old Testament just for the Jews? Does it have any authority in the New Testament church? Should we study it and take direction from it? Is it still relevant to the church? Now, that's what they've been talking about, and some have declared that it is not relevant and that we shouldn't waste our time in it. I don't actually think that at all. Uh, you know that because we are often preaching or teaching through books of the Old Testament. Well, let's look at what Jesus has to say together in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19 this morning about this issue. Verse 17 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Now, what Jesus is talking about, and I was, I was actually going to bring uh, my Hebrew Bible out here and show you, but I forgot it, and I got to thinking, it's, the writing is so small, you couldn't see it anyway from where you're at, but if you take the spine of my Hebrew Bible, I'm holding a Hebrew Bible here, can you see it? I, uh, if you take the spine of that, across the top, it, it, what, what it says is Torah, Navim, Kochvim, and what that means is the law, Torah, Navim, the prophets, and Kochvim, the writings. And so any Jew, when you're talking about the Old Testament text, is thinking of the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so uh, that's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 17. Do not think that I came to ab abolish the law, the Torah. I didn't do that. And don't think that I came to abol abolish the prophets, the Navim. 
the prophets of God, the ones that spoke in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Obadiah and all those other prophets, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish them. Now look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it all is accomplished. So uh, when will these things pass? Not until everything is accomplished. The Old Testament talks about things that have not even happened yet. Things that we look forward to in the eschaton. Things that are yet to come. Things that are going to happen that we haven't even seen yet. And until that happens, the law, the prophets, the writings are absolutely critical to us. Now his warning in verse 19. And this is serious. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm going to explain what Jesus just talked about. He said not, not one of the smallest strokes of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet will pass away that's in the Old Testament until they've been completed. And, and we'll just see just how small he was talking about. Well, let's go back to verse 17. We learned there that Jesus did not abolish the law or prophet's writings. He came to fulfill them. So we need to ask ourselves, what is Jesus talking about? Jesus came as the Messiah, the Son of God, to establish the new covenant, all right? The new covenant is talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31. God made a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. It doesn't mention in Jeremiah 31 the church. In fact, the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. Uh, there's no reference to the Old, in the Old Testament to the church. The new covenant, what we celebrate and what we're reading from this morning out of the New Testament that was promised to the Jews of Judah and Israel. It was not promised to the church. What we find out is the church is now, because of Jesus Christ, sharing in the benefits of the new covenant, but it wasn't originally written for us. But we are a part of that new covenant church. We're a part of what God is using to bring uh, jealousy to the Jews because of our relationship with the true and living God. And all of this was done so that every person has access to salvation. And he, he goes on to talk to us about this fact uh, in detail in just a minute. Jesus came to establish that new covenant. And to do that, he had to fulfill the law and the prophets first. And one of the things you do when you ratify a new covenant, you shed blood. And Jesus shed his blood to ratify the new covenant. And thus the old covenant is done away with. We do not hold to the Mosaic covenant. We hold to the new covenant. But that covenant was not necessarily written for us. It was written for Israel and Judah. But we are partakers of it by the grace of God. The righteous requirements of God in the law and the prophets about Messiah had to be perfectly fulfilled. For instance, if Jesus had not fulfilled the predictions that were made of him in the Old Testament about his dying on the cross, he could not be the Messiah. Just for a second, turn to Psalm 22. Uh, that's a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. And it makes predictions about something the Messiah must do if he really is the Messiah. And we're saying Jesus is the Messiah. And so the things we find in this psalm of the cross is uh, going to have to match Jesus. And we're not going to read it all, 
but I want you to notice even verse 1, okay? So hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross, this psalm proclaims the very things that he would say. And the first one in verse 1 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we read that in our New Testament as, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why did you forsake me? Here it is in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus said it, and Jesus said those very words on the cross. And you can look down uh, through this particular uh, psalm and see other things that he said, like in verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so that's a psalm of the cross. Now we're not going to take the time, but it's the same thing in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus, his taking our sins and dying for us, and uh, what would he achieve for us? He bore our iniquities, he bore our sins, and he takes them away uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Had Jesus not done that, had we not heard those words from Jesus on the cross, we'd have a right to say, I don't think this guy is the Messiah, but he fulfilled them all perfectly. Um, in a few weeks, <laughs> like like. 25 weeks, uh, I'm going to be talking about all the things that Jesus fulfilled in his ministry to prove who he was. We'll get to that. Well, Jesus taught that he did not come to abolish the law. What, what does the Greek text mean when it says abolish? Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. Well, what's it mean if I did abolish? It's used two times in this verse, and it means to demolish or to cause some ruin to something. It means to put an end to something or to put an end to the validity of something. So Jesus says, I did not come to destroy or end the, end the validity of, all right, that's important, or to ruin the validity of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, then if that's the case, if that's what it says, and, and I'm reading that right, isn't that, isn't that right? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. That's what Jesus said. No abolishing, but fulfilling. What did he fulfill? The Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible, and he fulfilled the prophets. And if he fulfilled it and he didn't abolish it, then it must be still valid. It must be still valid because it wasn't abolished. It wasn't done away with. What is valid now is governed by the New Testament text. What does the New Testament do with the commands of the Old Testament? Uh, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophetic predictions found in the Old Testament. Dr. Turner said this, he fulfills them or brings them to their divinely intended goal because they point to him. The Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. The first churches that ever existed in the apostles' day, when they opened the scripture to read it for their Sunday gathering, they used the Old Testament. That's all they had. That's all they needed at that point. But they had it, and that's what they did. The Old Testament is important. Now I want to take a minute, and I want to talk to you about the uh, thing that you saw on the screen this morning. Jeff Wood writes that a stained glass illustrates the importance of the Old Testament, and that's why I showed it to you. Here's what he says. High over the portals within the south transept of an 800-year-old cathedral of Chartres in France spreads a great rose window, 40 feet in diameter. At its center sits Christ, 
And I know you couldn't see that from out there, but you can always look that up online. At its center sits Christ, while immediately around him orbit eight angels and symbols of the four evangelists, each enclosed within a circle of stained glass and beyond them and beyond them orbit 24 elders of the book of Revelation, each also within his own bejeweled circle for a total of 36 orbiting circles of blue, red, gold, purple, and white, enough to make your head spin. Nor is that gigantic wheel of color the only thing to enchant you in the soaring wing of the cathedral because below it rises five more long, narrow windows, and I pointed those out. Uh, in the center of the feature is Mary, while the other four show images of the evangelists in this order, Luke and Matthew, John and Mark in that sequence. Now, if you look closely at the window of the four gospel writers, now we're talking about uh, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John guys. As you look closely to the four gospel writers, you notice something kind of amusing. All four of them almost appear boyish in size, and each of them sits on the shoulders of a tall prophet of the Old Testament. Luke is on the shoulders of Jeremiah, Matthew's is on the shoulders of Isaiah, John is on Ezekiel's, and Mark is on Daniel's. The four major voices of the New Testament ride piggyback on the four major voices of the Old just the way a dad might lift a small child on his shoulders, why would those artists do something as playful as this? He answers the question, well, it wasn't playful. They wanted to make a serious point, namely that the Gospels build, build on the wisdom and the vision of the Old Testament. It is the foundation of the New Testament. The Bible says that Jesus never broke the law of God. Now, if you're reading the Bible and you're not familiar with a lot of that theology, you could run across a place like uh, verse 18 of John chapter 5, where it says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. The false teachers of the day and the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to kill Jesus, so they said, well, he's breaking the law. Jesus never broke the law, not the law of God. He broke the law of men, that they wrapped around the law of God so that you wouldn't uh, get close to breaking the law. He never defiled, never did he break the law of God, and he never defiled the Sabbath. What he's seeing there is that people are accusing him of breaking the laws that men made around the Bible instead of just sticking with what the Bible says. And that, my friends, is always a problem. Where God was concerned, Jesus was no lawbreaker, and he was not antinomian, anti-law in the Old Testament. He kept the law perfectly. Now in verse 18, not until heaven and earth pass away, it says... And until the law is accomplished, will any part of the law disappear? Friends, it has not been accomplished yet. There are still things, eschatologically speaking, in the end times that have not taken place. And it's in the law. And the Bible says that will not come to an end until all these things are fulfilled. And they're not fulfilled yet. So how can somebody say, it isn't for the church today? This verse is a statement that the Old Testament text is vital uh, to the complete counsel of God and is still part of our scriptures today and they are for the church. The Old Testament contains and conveys pre-Christ issues. 
Christ issues and post-Christ's coming issues. God's word, the Old Testament, will not cease, this says, or be uh, disappearing in any manner until all of it is accomplished. So men can burn it, and they have. They can tear it up, and they have. They can bury it, they did. They can ignore it and uh, make it look like it's disappeared in the ocean depths, but it still will remain. And what it says will be carried out and accomplished because it is of God. Jesus gives us two illustrations of what he's talking about. The smallest letters refer to the Hebrew language. Smallest letters uh, in, that, in that particular language. One of them is a yud. All right, and it looks, if you saw it, it would look like, a, a, like a, a partial quote mark, just one little comma at the top. And that's a yud. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And Jesus is saying, not, not even that yud or the other thing uh, is called a tittle in the Old Test, in the, uh, New, uh, the old King James, but we call it a stroke or a hook. And it's a horn-like projection on another Hebrew letter, the letter D, Dalit. And if you saw it, if you would take a, a big T, like RT, all right, and you, and you go to one side of it and you cut it off so just a little bitty tiny part sticks out, that's what a tittle would be. That's, that's that little mark. And it's important because if you don't have that, you can't tell the difference between a Hebrew D and a Hebrew R. The Raish and the Dalit would look alike if it wasn't for that. Here's another illustration of that. Um, <clears throat> somewhere here. Uh, the example is that uh, if you, well, let me get to that in a minute, okay? I want to get ahead of myself. Um, it is as simple as looking at the scriptures and saying everything that is there, God wants to be there. And in English, it's like if you wrote the word pole, and that means one thing, but if you write the word roll, that means another thing. And if you took that little line and drew it on the bottom of a P, now it becomes an R. And that's kind of what that uh, little tittle was in the Hebrew. It's just like that. But if I wanted to say pole in the text, but instead I say roll, I change the meaning of the text. And Jesus says, the word of God is so important, not even the smallest letter, not even the smallest stroke that differentiates a letter will ever disappear until it has been fulfilled. Mind you, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Every part of the text is important to God. None of it is frivolous or unimportant. What God has written, all of it will be accomplished. So Jesus has a warning for people who downgrade any part of this book, whether it's Old or New Testament. We learn there that teachers must never annul the least of these commandments or they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven in the days yet future. It is as simple as diminish any part of the word of God and your reward in heaven will also be diminished. Now, what does that mean for you and me? It means that when we're teaching the word of God, there is nothing that is so unimportant that we should skip it. There is nothing that God did not mean for his people to have. It means that if I'm going to teach it to children, if I'm going to teach it to adults, I must teach it all, everything that is there. What did Jesus mean when he said uh, at one point, he talked about lesser commandments? Let me set that up for us for just a second. So I want to go to 
2 Timothy 3.16, which are all of our uh, Awana kids know. It says, all scripture, every portion of scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When Paul wrote that, he was still using the Old Testament to teach New, New Testament people things about God. And he says all portions of Scripture, every portion, all that is Scripture, and it is all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and important. Not just what you like and what you don't like. Not just what Thomas Jefferson thought was out of bounds by being a miracle, so he takes his scissors and cuts miracles out of his Bible. Not that, but every portion of of scripture is inspired. And Jesus said, if you annul one of the least of these my commandments and teach others to do the same. What does he mean, the least of these? What is he saying? Well, if you would please turn to Deuteronomy 22, the last book of what is the section of the law in the Old Testament. And I wanna read uh, some things that maybe you haven't thought about for a while that God has in the law of God. And the example of uh, the least and the greatest, uh, here's some on the least, and it's gonna be about birds and nests. And when you build a house and you put a roof on top and it's for people to walk around on, you need to put a safety railing there, all right? This is in the law. So we look at 22.6. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You can have the mom, but you don't take the eggs. Uh, that's, that's a law. It's a law in the law of God. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you shall take for yourself in order that it may be well with you that you may prolong your days. I wonder how many scribes just decided, you know what, that's not that important. Uh, today, I'm not going to go through that. When we do the Torah reading today, I'm just going to skip that. Who cares about nests and birds? And the answer is, God cares. And he cares how you treat them. Verse 8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet on your roof. In other words, a railing around there, so that you will not bring blood guiltiness on your house if anyone falls from it. So God says, uh, let's uh, just put a railing around there so people don't fall off your roof when you're up there, because they did that a lot, and somebody dies, now you're guilty of manslaughter. Let's do that. And so some of those laws are looked at, that's nah, not that important, that's kind of the least of the law, but we, we ought to do the things that are really important in the law, and that's what we focus on. And then Jesus had something to say about that. In Matthew uh, 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. I really don't know how you say that word correctly because I don't like that, so I don't eat it. It might be cumin or cumin. I don't know what it is. And have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done. Look at that last phrase. Without neglecting the others. Sure, you might think the thing about the birds and the eggs, and, and that's not that important, but God put it in the law. It is important. 
God says you need to take care of the important things, but don't forget to also do those things that are lesser laws. We're not allowed to pick and choose and do whatever we want. We get all upset about little things and let the big things slide, Jesus says. He says, do them all. Do them all. That's why God gave them to us. Craig Keener said this, Jesus concurs. God does not allow us the right to say, I will obey his teaching about murder, but not his teaching about adultery or fornication. Or, I will obey his teaching about theft, but not the laws of divorce. To refuse his right to rule any of our ethics or behavior is to deny the lordship. He's talking about Jesus being a master. If I sit in judgment on what God says, nah, okay, I'll do that, or nah, I'm not going to do that. Dr. Keener is saying, you're judging God's ethics. Who are we to judge the ethics of God? Shouldn't we just do it? And the answer is yes, we should. So what we want to pick up here is that the godly teacher teaches. So if you teach a Bible study, a Sunday school class, you're leading Awana children, or you have a ladies' Bible study, or men's Bible study, or whatever you're doing with the Bible, a godly teacher teaches the least and the greatest of the commandments of God. You don't look at some part of the word of God and say, that's not important. Yes, it is. Jesus said it is. You want to be least in the kingdom of heaven? Then say it's not important. You want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Say, we're going to do this because it is important. So the godly teacher teaches the least and the greatest of the commands of God and lives them. Do not trivialize or treat as unimportant even the smallest commands of God. Uh, Don't diminish any part of the word of God to your students. Jesus is watching how we treat his word. Teachers must never undermine the importance of any portion of God's word in the heart of the students. You're never going to catch me skipping over a passage because I don't think it's important. We do it verse by verse. Keep and teach the whole counsel of God, and you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But probably you'll be made fun of here. Don't worry about that. That's not the issue. Worry about what God wants you to do. Even the small things in the Bible are important to God. That's why he put them in there. All of it needs to be important to us. For example, there is no such thing as a white lie. That doesn't exist. It's a lie. As there is biblically no such thing as a white witch. There's no such thing as that either. Neither of those are okay with God. When you unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and you no longer have the full counsel of God, least in the kingdom is one who does that. And we just don't want to be those kind of people. And so that means you don't skip something in your devotional, you don't skip something in the Word of God when you're reading it yourself and say that's just not not important. And that, that's not too hard to do until you get to Second Chronicles and the genealogies and you think, oh, Jesus, help me. And he'll help you. And you can get through those genealogies. They're important. They're there for a reason. The whole counsel of God. I just want to remind you, in the book of Romans, chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of, of the law 
that means he fulfilled it for righteousness to everyone who believes. We had to have somebody that was righteous who could die for the rest of us unrighteous people. And Jesus was the one who did it. He put an end to the law and its power over us over death by fulfilling the law because he perfectly lived for God. So he can be your substitute for paying the debt of your sin. And that's what he wants to be. So in your applications there, number one, Christ for our salvation accomplished fulfillment of the law, something we could never do. Secondly, we are responsible to obey God's commands to us. Nine of the Ten Commandments came right over into the New Testament. One was abolished, and that's okay. That one was, uh, for, for the people of God in the Old Testament, was the keeping of Sabbath. And Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament among the Ten Commandments for us to keep. There is no Sabbath day for the Christian. Instead, what is the sign of our covenant? The sign of our covenant that says we belong to the new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. Now we keep all those other nine uh, laws of the Ten Commandments because they are repeated in the New Testament for us to keep. So we always ask of the Old Testament, what's the New Testament do with it? Did it nullify that law, modify that law, or abolish that law? I mean, or, or, or uh, modify it? I missed something there. It, something. What did I do? Just a test to see if you've been watching and listening. Yeah. Ratify, yeah. Thank you. What the New Testament does with it is what we do with it. So you don't shove uh, uh, some theology of the Sabbath on the New Testament church. There isn't one. But you do use those things that he tells us are there. And today we're going to celebrate that we belong to the new covenant. We were grafted in. It was made for Israel and Judah, Jeremiah 31, but we're grafted in. We get to partake of what would be the equivalent of the Israeli peace offering with God without shedding any animal blood or doing any sacrifices or anything like that because Jesus paid all that price. So we are responsible to obey the commands of God. Nine of the Ten Commandments were ratified for us. And lastly, we don't ignore something in the Bible because we think it is trivial or not important or just because we don't like what it says. God put it in there for a reason. Well, I think uh, that's a a great segue, if you will, into our time around this table. We talked a little bit last time, if you were here, that uh, the cup was something that would be used to, between two people to ratify a covenant. And by ratifying that covenant, they are saying, I belong to that covenant. So when we partake of these symbols of, of Christ and what he did on the cross, we are symbolizing our membership in that covenant. And I thought we would use uh, Matthew uh, 26, 26 for this morning. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. And there it is, that which seals the covenant, that which ratifies the covenant of the death of the testator, the one who made this covenant. 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then after the Passover meal that Jesus had said is about him, uh, they sang a hymn, and then they went out. We want to recognize that what we're doing here is we're saying, by partaking of this, we're saying, I'm in covenant with Jesus. Well, how did you get in covenant with Jesus? You made a decision. And your decision was, I'm a sinner bound for hell. And today I'm believing that the Lord Jesus Christ saved me for, from the penalty of my sins with his blood on the cross, with his death, burial, and resurrection. He has saved me, and if I believe that, he gives me eternal life. And I did that when I was eight years old. You probably did it at a different time in your life. But the point is, you have to have done that, or you're not supposed to take this. Uh, the, the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 says, there are penalties for taking this if you don't belong to Jesus. So if you belong to Jesus, this is not uh, the communion of the Evangelical Free Church of Smith Center. It's God's communion, and it's for anybody who knows Christ as their Savior. So what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to ask Brad to pray for the bread. Then we're going to give you some time to take anything to the Lord you want in silence and pray to him, thank him for what he's done on the cross for us, for you. And then uh, when Becky uh, gives us an interlude, we'll stop and we'll take the bread together. So Brad, would you pray for that? And then let's uh, meditate and contemplate in a biblical way on those things. prepare together to take the bread. This symbolizes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this according to your covenant with him.
taking this cup, we are proclaiming that we are members of the new covenant. So drink this in honor of the covenant you have made. Ask our praise team to come and close us in the service. Also, if you would please uh, take your cups after the service and throw them in the trash can, we would appreciate that. Thank you. Please rise and sing with us 